Take your Bible, if you would, and join me today in the book of Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. As we begin, let me ask a question today, and that is a fairly straightforward question. Have you ever wondered about the genuine authenticity of another person's love? You may have desired it. You may have tried to think some affirmations of love, but there was something nagging in the back of your mind, this question mark that continually rose to the surface, bringing some doubt, some hesitation, some reservation regarding the genuine aspect of their love. Sometimes those feelings transfer not only in human-to-human, person-to-person relationships, but sometimes, and even more troubling, those thoughts begin to creep into a relationship that needs to be intact. We desire for it to be solid without question. Of course, there is the reciprocation of love. I love him and I, I want to know that he loves me. One of the first verses that I suspect you ever learned if you grew up in a church environment is a church that is a verse that speaks directly to the matter of love. That is God's love for you. For God so loved the world. And then he gives the proof of that love that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, what a broad invitation, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have at this very present moment, not something we ascribe to or we hope to finally obtain at some point in the future, but have everlasting life. And we take great hope and comfort and even confidence and verses that we have learned even from our early childhood days, God so loved the world. And then if we extrapolated a little bit further regarding the things that you learned, possibly not only was the first verse that you learned, for God so loves the world, but maybe the first song your lips ever uttered in a church setting was a song that again, we, we know well, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. These are affirmations that seem to be timely in our lives when questions flood our minds. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus loves me. This I know. The title of our message today is taken from the same. It is, yes, Jesus loves me. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read a sizable passage, but it helps us get the context, the, the scope, the breadth of this passage of Scripture and how it pertains to people just like you and people like me who need to be reassured in times when questions do flood our minds. Does God really love me? Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, the Bible says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible very clearly says that God loves us. But at times we do find ourselves wondering, questioning, some little hesitation or doubt regarding his love. We question his actions. We find ourselves in circumstances or situations where we feel anything but loved. Paul is anticipating this collision of facts and feelings. Like I know the, the fact of the matter, the, the fact, the truth of scripture is that God loves me, but my feelings don't tell me that. There is this collision of fact and feeling. The ruler of the synagogue whose daughter had just died must have felt anything but loved by God. He was one who, who served God, he served the people, he's known as a good man. But when he comes to Jesus, there are those who say, leave the master alone, your daughter's already dead. And Jesus speaks to this one and he says in Mark 5, 36, be not afraid, only believe. You may not feel right now as if you are loved by God, but he says, don't be afraid. Don't let your emotions speak to your mind. Let your mind speak to your soul. Be not afraid, only believe. Jesus said to Martha after she had been lamenting the loss of her brother, now some four days. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever, anyone, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? There are things that do make us doubt the sincerity of love. So God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to provide what I think is an overwhelming amount of reassurance regarding the unbreakable, inseparable love of God. So as we look at this passage, let's ask the simple question, how do I know that God loves me? It is a good question, and we're going to consider today four answers and then a concluding thought. 
So let's begin. How do I know that God loves me? Well, the first thing that we find in our passage is because God has prized me. God has prized me. In other words, God looks at me, God looks at you as his special treasure. That thing that he wants to take some some special care of. God has looked at you and prized you. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse number 31 in our text again. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us. If God be for us. Now, you may want to circle or underline or in some special way note that in your copy of the scriptures. If God be for us, if he's on my side, does it really matter what it is that lines up against me? If God be for us, it really doesn't matter who stands against us. It's one of the ways that we know God loves me. He surprised me. He's for me. Because Paul's asking now a lot of rhetorical questions, which he commonly does to ask a question rhetorically and then fill it in with the answer, there is something about this passage that you might have already picked up on. You say, well, if God be for us, if God be for us, hmm, if, that's a big if. Well, what if he's not for me? Yeah, God might be for you, he might be for you, he might be for you. This is a question that Paul's asking rhetorically. We might say it today, we might say, because God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying, you know, if by chance God is on your side, he's saying with some rhetorical aspect, he's saying, now, if God be for us, yes, he is, because he's for us, who is it that could stand against us? And once we begin to grasp this very powerful truth, it becomes life-changing. Because God is for us, because one of the old commentators, Donald Gray Barnhouse, wrote the following. The moment that this truth, that God is for us, the moment that this truth is received and applied personally, There can be no more frustrations in the mind, the heart, the life. God is for me. That is a powerful statement. Once we begin to apprehend the truths, the moment I receive this truth, it begins to erase, erode, wash away all of those nagging doubts in the back of my mind that seem to situationally arise. Because I've already answered the question, well, God is for me. He prizes me. He's in my corner. He's cheering me on. This has not come into my life because God is against me. God is for me. Think about who it is that we're talking about. This is almighty God. Okay, so if God is known for his love, and he is, what else is God known for? And I want you to ask yourself the question this morning. Ask yourself, okay, I know God is love. The Bible says that. John records God is love. Okay, so I know that. But what else do we say God is in his essence? In his essence. In fact, all of his attributes stem from this attribute or this characteristic that God is in his essence. And some of you say, hey, I'm already there. God is holy. God is holy. 
How's his holiness revealed to a people who, who really were just getting to know Jehovah God? Moses even says, when I go and talk to the people, how do I introduce you to them? Who do I say sent me? You tell them that I am hath sent me. And then God starts to reveal himself to his people. And one of the ways that God powerfully reveals himself is through the commandments, through the Ten Commandments. We know what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. These are moral matters before God. And where does God reveal them? On the Mount Sinai. And how do we know that God is dwelling now on the Mount? Well, thunderings, lightnings, this thick cloud. The the people are warned, don't go near and touch the mountain lest you die. And they hear this holy God there who now becomes to them unapproachable. Who shall ascend unto thy holy hill? Uh, 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 Send Moses. Moses, you go up. You be our representative before God because we can't even approach him. In Isaiah chapter, in, in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, in fact, the first five chapters, It's interesting that Isaiah continually pronounces woes upon the people of Israel. Woe unto you. He's he's pronouncing some judgment, some aspect of, of God's punishment because of their disobedience. Woe unto you. And he does so with some vigor and and some strength of conviction. Woe until we get to Isaiah chapter 6. And now Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God. And when Isaiah begins to see the holiness of God, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the angels that are continually circling the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And then, woe is me. You know, you start to think, who is it that says, I am for you? This is holy God. The one that we stand in this awesome reverence regarding his purity. The flaming fire of his holiness. This is the God who is reaching out to you. And the apostle John now helps us to see another side of God. His holiness has been answered in the person of Jesus Christ. And now the apostle John begins to say, behold, What manner of love the Father hath given unto us that we should be called the sons of God? He says, behold. You know, whenever he says behold, he's saying, hey, 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 pay attention. Behold, if you want something to look at, behold. He's saying, listen, don't let this pass by your attention. Behold, what manner of love. He's saying, literally, is there any kind of love that stands next to, that compares to the love of God? This is the love that stands beside you, cheering you on. This is the love that stands before you, leading the way. It stands behind you, supporting and propping you up. It stands beneath you as your firm foundation. It stands above you, preparing the way and preparing for all you might need along the journey of life. And he's continually sending overtures of love, reminding us that though all hell should stand against us, God is for us. How do I know that God loves me? How do you know that God loves you? Because 
you are prized. How do I know that, that Jesus loves me? How do I know that God is for me? Well, look next, because God has not only prized me, God has provisioned me. He has provisioned me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Okay, he's saying, listen, if he gave us Jesus, the greatest gift that could ever be given, won't he with him also freely give you all things? He's given you the greater. Won't he be prepared to give you the lesser? You know, when, when you start to think, think about sacrifice, every purchase we make is, is based on a, a gain-loss principle. Sacrifice is the forfeiture of something highly valued for the gain of something of greater value or claim. Okay, so um, I was in an airport recently, and when I'm in an airport, I bought a bottle of water. How many of you have ever bought a bottle of water in the airport, but you hated doing it? Okay. Okay, I paid $5.50 for a bottle of water, 16 ounces of water. I pay less for a gallon of gasoline, okay? <laughs> I'm thankful my car doesn't run on water because I couldn't afford to drive it. $5.50 for a bottle of water? So you say, why did you pay it? I don't know. So let's just move on. <laughs> Actually, the reason I paid it is because at that moment it was worth it to me. Seriously. Now, I begrudged it. I didn't like it. But at that moment, oh, I want the bottle of water. I, I want the $5.50, but not as badly as I want the bottle of water. And so a sacrifice was made. We're pretty stingy with making sacrifices, especially for those things that we value. I, I remember this so clearly, and I wish I didn't, but I do. In fact, it's, it's interesting and it's timely. My parents are in the service this morning, my dad and my mom. We, my, my parents used to run into the store to grab something all the time, and, and I'm the oldest of four kids. So usually, I mean, by, by the time they're running into the store, you know, there's at least three boys in the car at that time. And it was like sometimes World War III, you know. I mean, we're, we're wrestling and punching, fighting, screaming. The car's moving all over the place, you know. But, but back in that day, that was just par for the course, okay. Nobody called the cops. Just like, well, one of them's probably going to die. You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> so um, I'm, we're in the car. And dad ran into the store, grabbed something quick for mom. And he came back out. And he bought us all probably a 10-cent pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. There were five sticks, I think, in every little 10-cent package of, of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. And he handed it to each of us. And he didn't tell us, hey, if you guys are good, I'm going to get you a pack of gum. He didn't say that. He just came out out of the goodness of his heart. He bought it, parted with money, gave us the Juicy Fruit Gum. He handed a pack to me. I'm the oldest of the, of the kids. And and so me and Terry and Rob and gave us each a, a pack of gum, our own. We didn't have to share it with anybody else. And then he said to me, he said, he looked at me and he said, Jeff, can I have a piece? And I said, Dad, there's only five. <laughs> Who just gave me the gum? Dad, there's only five. And he said, okay, don't worry about it. And I said, no, 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 you can have some. And then he said, no, 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 no. I don't want any. You keep it. 
the gum did not taste nearly as good. Why? Well, because I wasn't willing to part with something. I mean, a, a few cent, what, two cent stick of gum. What is it that, that God sacrificed for you to provision you? Wow. And, and he doesn't send his son into the world, this holy God, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What has God done for you? He sacrificed the greatest. And, and if he offers us the greatest, Will he not freely provision us with all things? A guy named Dave Simmons told of a time when several years ago, this was back in a day when you could do this, but he was going to the hardware store and, and he had his two kids with him and as they pulled up, they saw a little petting zoo in the parking lot. And they, they looked at him, Dad, can we go? And of course you can. And he tosses them both a quarter and, and he heads into the 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 hardware store and and his two children run over with an excited glee to be involved in the to go play in the petting zoo and he was shocked a few moments later when he saw his daughter and she came slowly up behind him and and he thought wow she prefers to be with me in the hardware store than she does with her brother in the petting zoo and and he quickly realized that that was not the case. And a moment later, he writes what took place. I was shocked to see she preferred me and the hardware store to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked up at me with those giant, limpid brown eyes and said sadly, well, daddy, it, it costs 50 cents. So I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I ever heard. She repeated the family motto. The family motto is love in action. She had given Brandon her quarter and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than my daughter, Helen. What do you think I did? Well, not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen and she never asked for it because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love in action. It is love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. I was thinking about the words in the hymn book today and I even opened before the, the service in, in the back room today. I, I was opening because I wanted to look again at the words, what wondrous love is this? Oh my soul, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to send this precious peace to my soul, to my soul, to send this precious peace to my soul. As I'm, as I'm looking up the words to the song, I look across the page and I see again, oh, wondrous love 
that will not let me go. I cling to you with all my strength and soul. Yet if my hold should ever fail, this wondrous love will never let me go. How do I know that God loves me? Because you are prized. He is for you. How do I know that God loves me? Because I am provisioned. The old devotional writer, Matthew Henry, once wrote, freely give, freely, without reluctancy, he is ready to give, meets us with his favors and freely, without recompense, without money, without price. How shall he not? Can it be imagined that he should do the greater and not the less? that he should give so great a gift for us when we were enemies and should deny us any good thing. Now that through him, we are friends and children. The word freely here, it means that there is nothing you can do to get it and therefore nothing you can do to lose it. Freely. One man wrote, God's unlimited forgiveness makes it impossible for a believer to sin himself out of God's grace. What a provision. Like, okay, God, you're gonna provision, you've given me this gift, but what if I sin my way out of that provision? Impossible. He has freely given. There are no demands on that. Well, I know he freely gave it, but I better be good to keep it. No, 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 freely means freely. Nothing you can do to get Nothing you can do to keep. How do I know that God loves me? Because God has prized me. Because God has provisioned me. And might I submit, because God has purified me. He has purified me. Verse 33 in our text. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. The words lay anything to the charge. They mean who's going to come forward as an accuser to bring any charge against? Who shall lay anything? Who's going to come forward? Who will be the accuser here? No, 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 no. It is God that has justified. Now, maybe if it was a lesser person, I'll justify you. You justify me. You know, today we're looking for that. Today we have a world that is looking for everyone in their community, in their culture, to give some kind of approval, some kind of acknowledgement, some kind of assent that your lifestyle is just as legitimate as everyone else's. It's not the approval that we need. It's not the justification that stands. There's only one who can answer all of the accusations against, and that is in the high court of heaven upon which God rules as judge. What has he done? How do I know he loves me? Because that judge declares me to be righteous. It is God that justifieth. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So somebody might ask, they might say, well, Is there any legitimacy to the charges against us? Good question. Have I I done anything that, that is worthy of accusation? And the problem is, yes, I have done those things. We've all done those things that are chargeable. 
You know, Satan is known as the great accuser. He's known as a liar, the father of it. But I find it interesting that when Satan goes to accuse the brethren, he doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to fabricate something against you, against me. Satan can go into that courtroom of heaven and say, I have an accusation to make. And he begins to list those things that are consistent with our lives. The accuser takes all that we've committed, brings it before the father, look what they have done, how they've acted, what they've been thinking, and on and on he goes. And the father says, I knew all of that before I declared him to be righteous. It's as if he says, tell me something I don't already know. Do you remember how Jesus is presented in the book of Hebrews? He's he's presented, in fact, the Bible says Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Okay, so our high priest, what does the priest do? Well, the priest is representing the people before God. Notice later in Hebrews, what is it that, that the priests are doing? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 11, and every, high, and every priest standeth, note that word, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. In other words, working over and over and over again. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to do this again. I have to do this again the same sacrifices which can never take sins away but this man Jesus but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God wow what a what a provision I mean, the priests every day. Do you know in the temple we we don't find that there are the places of respite for the priest Uh, This is the resting area for the priest. This is the priest's lounge. We don't get that idea. We get this idea that when the priest is on duty, he's on duty. Another sacrifice, more blood that is shed, uh, another thing that is consumed and offered before God over and over and over and over. And Jesus offers one sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And then what does he do? He sits down. Why? Because there is no more sacrifice for sin. Do you know what this means? It means that you and I are fully provisioned. There is nothing left that need be offered in the presence of God that was not offered in the person of Jesus Christ. Satan may present his case. They are liars. They're bitter, immoral, rebels, arrogant, prideful, lazy, cheaters, controlled by their flesh, grieving your Holy Spirit. My, how that should should bring some shame to the heart of any who has been washed in the blood. And yet even as we stand guilty before the accuser, it's almost as if that handwriting that was written against us is nailed to the base of the cross. And we begin to read, In Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. 
There is no higher court than the court of heaven. If you have been justified there, your sentence is eternally secure. How do I know that God loves me? I'll tell you one way we know is because God has purified you. How do I know that God loves me? He's prized me, he's provisioned me, he's purified me. What else has God done? God has prevailed over all for me. God has prevailed over all for me. The Bible says in beginning in Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he says this, he's saying this almost parenthetically. He says, for, for the, as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, Christians have been persecuted since their existence. There have been difficulties and challenges, hardships, abuses. This has happened to believers all the time. We know this as it is written, for thy sake, we're killed all the day long. That's nothing strange. But, but here is what we have that is unique to any other people. He goes on and he says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We often feel abandoned, quite honestly, during times of trial. Paul realized this when he wrote to prepare not only the church at Rome, who would endure some of the most severe persecution that the church and the Christians that make it up would ever endure. And, and, and we're talking about potentially a 200-year time period where they're going to endure persecution. He understands that this is something that you will face. Challenge, difficulty, tribulation, trial, hardship, sickness, loss. And he wants us to understand there is something that you can anticipate that is greater than your trial. So let's prepare for this. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been somewhat reassured when you're approaching surgery and the surgeon comes and he meets with you and he says, okay, we're gonna do this and this and this. And then you may even ask the question, okay, hey doc, I have a question for you. What should I expect after the surgery? And he says, oh, good question. Here's what's gonna happen. You're going to have this kind of pain. You're going to have this kind of recovery. It's going to take this long. You're going to experience these things. Now, if this happens, I want you to let me know. But here's what we would normally anticipate for. There's some reassurance, even during the recovery time, when it might be difficult. It might be hard. But the doctor told me it's normal after surgery to experience whatever. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, hey, listen. I know we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. I, I know that there is, is the reality of tribulation. Tribulation, it carries the idea of being crushed, distressed. That means, wow, thing, things got narrow. I, I feel like everything's closing in. Persecution, to be rejected, ridiculed, mocked, abandoned, mistreated because of your faith. And then he seems like he starts to list those things that are kind of the result of tribulation. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He says, listen, no matter what it is that you're going to face, you are more than a conqueror. Do you know what he says? He, he says, nay, in all these things, more than conquerors through him that loved us. If you, have a, uh, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 8, you should circle, underline, highlight, put an exclamation point, more than conquerors. 
The word, the Greek word is hupernikao. It's the only place in scripture the word's used. Now we, we have it parsed in our English language as more than, but it's, it's really just this idea of, you, it, what it, here's what it means. It means you are a super conqueror. Um, Hooper, you are a hyper conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. Do you know, sometimes we go through some trial and we get through the other side and we say, whew, wow, glad I made it. There's some relief because we made it through the trial. But you know what a, a super conqueror does? A super conqueror can rejoice in the midst of the trial because he knows what's on the other side. I'm not just a conqueror. I'm not just gonna make it through. I am a super conqueror. I am more than a conqueror. Why? Because of the one who loves me. What do you have in him? Because of all this, because he's prized me, provisioned me, purified me, prevails over all for me, because of all this, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that God loves me. Look at the list that he puts before us. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. And then quite honestly, I, th I think he's saying, listen, if I forgot something, nor any other creature, there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And to that, we can take such solace, such comfort, in the midst of all the persecution, the, the trouble, the trial, the hardship, the loss, the sickness, the emptiness, the loneliness, we can say, I am a super conqueror through the one who loves me. God loves you. There is nothing material or immaterial, angelic or demonic, high or low, present or future, known or unknown, real or imagined that can separate you from the love of God. Remember when Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's not referring to the believer's love of Christ. Don't miss this. When Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He is not asking, what is it that could possibly separate your love from God? I hope you're thinking right now, this is an important question. Is there anything that could come up in your life that could separate you from loving God? It's an important question, anything. You think about the thing that you want to happen least of all. God, please don't ever allow that to happen. If that happens, is it possible that you could say, God, I question my love for you. What shall separate? That's the, that's the word that would be used regarding divorce. What shall divorce? And do you know what he is not asking? He's not asking, hey, is there anything that could divorce you from loving him? What he's asking is, is there anything that can divorce him from loving you? Whoo, wow. You mean to say that his love for me is not dependent upon my love for him? And that is exactly what scripture means to say. His love for you is not dependent upon your love for him. 
What shall separate us from his love? And he says, the answer is absolutely nothing. You know, we sing the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. It was first written in a novel back in the early 1800s by a person named Susan Warner. She wrote the words in this novel. They were spoken as a poem to a young child who was dying. A man named William Bradbury found the little poem. He put it to a tune. And now we start to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Does God love you? The answer is with an everlasting love.